0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones and in the first of 3 podcasts leading up to the Dutch election on March the 17th, I'm joined today by Tom Lawasser, co-author with Rudy Underweich and Galen Erwin of the fifth edition of The Governance and Politics of the Netherlands, published in August 2020 by Red Globe Press. Tom Lawasser is associate professor in political science at Leiden University his PhD, also at Leiden and supervised by Rudi Anduwe, he researched the mandates of Dutch and British political parties. From 2013 to 15, he was an assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin, and in 2015 received the Emerging Scholars Award from the American Political Science Association. Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Let's begin by talking about what this book is and who it's for. It's the fifth edition and the first one that you've worked on. Can you tell us more about the history of the book and how you came to be involved?
1: Yes, this is a, a quite long-running uh, book because even before the first edition, there was a predecessor uh, published under a slightly different title. So uh, my co-authors even say it's in even the sixth edition. Um <laughs> And it, it's really a book that aims to be relevant for both uh, students uh, in in politics, in, in Dutch politics, but also comparatively, as well as trying to provide uh, an introduction to Dutch politics for a broader audience of uh, other scholars, but also I think of, uh, of the general audience, which is sometimes a bit tricky to uh, mm-hmm. appeal to those uh, different audiences, but I think uh, by by choosing the style we do that tries to be accessible, but also provide enough detail and references to scholarly work. Um, it I, I hope it meets the goal of of speaking to those dif- different audiences.
0: Mm-hmm. I, actually, I, when I was when I was reading it, one thing jumped out at me, which was this: this book itself says something about modern. Uh, modern Dutch culture, in that, you know, a big part of your target audience is, is Dutch students. So, are a lot of comparative politics courses taught in English in the Netherlands?
1: So, uh, in Leiden, we have an introduction to a Dutch politics uh, course, uh, which is taught in Dutch, but the textbook is in English. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that might might seem a little bit uh, strange to, to outsiders. <laughs> um, but. I think in, in our uh, programs, almost all literature is in English anyway. So it's something students need to um, need to work with uh, with anyway. And um, I, I think for us, writing it in English uh, opens up the possibility to speak to other audiences as well, and also approach, or at least that that's what we try to approach the country. From a little bit from an outsider perspective as well, to try to make it uh, accessible uh, for someone who does not know a lot about the Netherlands uh, yet. And I think that's also a a nice perspective for students. Uh, When I uh, was a a first-year student in Leiden and I worked with with a very early predecessor of this uh, uh, book uh, myself, I found that rather refreshing to really look at the Dutch case a little bit from the outside in uh, instead of from the inside out, and uh, I think that's th- that is also helpful for students
0: yeah, i think I think we could all do with um an outside perspective on our politics. Um, do i mean is is there outside the netherlands is is there a lot of interest in Dutch politics in terms of uh, a typical political science degree or a European studies course? Or does it tend to you know, take a, a back seat to studying European institutions or looking at German or French politics, for example?
1: Well, I think the the biggest focus in what we can call comparative politics would be the comparative study of uh, different countries. Um, so in, in that comparative study, the Netherlands would feature as a case, sometimes one of two cases, sometimes one of all european uh, countries or one of uh, one of all oecd nations uh, and sometimes as a case study to to learn something about a phenomenon a phenomenon that is particularly clear in, in in the dutch case and a lot of my own scholarly work is also in that area so i study questions about legislative politics for example that i think are of general interest are not just limited to case specific Dutch politics knowledge, but which we argue then in our, in our uh, articles uh, are particularly relevant uh, to be studied within the Dutch case, and other scholars do that as well in other countries. And, and so we speak to each other, uh, learning from the particular uh, country uh, cases and putting them in comparative perspective. So I think that's uh, a big part of this comparative politics uh, literature.
0: Okay. Well, let's let's begin with some of the substance of the book. Um, yeah, I mean, it begins with this very useful historical backdrop um, for the later chapters on political themes, and obviously, there's a lot in there. But I'd like I'd like to explore two themes. First, the question: Is there a Dutch identity in the speech of Queen Maxima in two thousand and seven? And the second. What you describe as the amazing transformation of the country from the 1960s onwards, from a religious and boring uh, environment to some, you know, to a country that is now known everywhere as uh, progressive and permissive. Can you take us through these two themes and their and their salience for uh, modern politics?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, so, um, if if I start with with the the, the transformation. Um, I think in, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Dutch society was very much a, a pillarized society, as as we call it in the book, which which is a poor English translation. But it, it basically means that different social and religi- religious groups um, basically lived in their own mini societies uh, with their own political parties, their own newspapers, Uh, their own labor unions, uh, of course, their own churches as well, but also all kinds of organizations were of a particular religious flavor or a a socialist flavor in in case of the Social Democrats. Um, And it's so people really, to a large extent, lived within those pillars, as we call it, especially uh, the Catholic pillar was very strong. And and also the other uh, pillars, the other Protestant uh, pillars were, were were quite strong, and the social democratic ones uh, as well. And and then you had a a category of um, yeah so called neutral pillar, which were mostly liberals. And and there that 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 system didn't work as strongly. Um, um, perhaps also because they traditionally had been stronger players in state institutions. So. To a certain degree, they uh, uh, were were working mostly closely within those uh, general institutions, um, but but that was really an important way of structuring society, but also politics. People just voted for their party that they, uh, they that represented their their pillar. Um, so if you were a manual laborer you voted labor and if you were Catholic you voted Catholic uh, usually that also took precedence over your work situation um, uh, so that meant that there were basically uh, five larger political parties um, a Catholic uh, party, uh, two Protestant parties depending on the denomination um, so more conservative you might say or um uh, party that appeared to what we call in the book the re-reformed uh, mm. uh Protestants because there were so many reformations in in, in Dutch <laughs> Protestantism uh that it, it both both translates as reformed so we call them re-reformed or gereformeerden <laughs> uh, and another one the the regular reformed uh, uh Protestants and then the social democrats and 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 the liberals which at the time were uh, the smallest but that system uh, from the end of the 60s started to to break down um, uh, part of a general modernization, modernization individualization uh, that we of course also see in other countries but in the in the Dutch context that meant that that people's connection to those pillars and to those parties uh, connected to those pillars were gradually uh, diminishing especially for for, for younger, uh, generations and and they started more and more just to vote for a party uh, f- uh one party at one election and maybe another party at another election um and this this strong connection between pillar and, and politics started to gradually uh, decline um and and those those newer and younger voters also took uh, different positions on uh, on some of the uh, um, for example medical ethical issues uh, and and issues in terms of uh, um, uh, environment uh, drugs etc et, et uh, and and then you get uh, yeah more uh, fluent political landscape as a result where also values had changed although that's <laughs> That stance of the country in terms of its, um, how you say, um, permissive uh, liberal outlook, has also been challenged more recently, because mm-hmm. from the 2000s on, you you do see also that that uh, right wing populist parties uh, have a big following uh, as well. So. It's, it's really not that everyone in the Netherlands is a cosmopolitan. I think far from it. And yeah. even, even in the 80s and 90s, there was generally a small uh, right-wing majority in parliament and never a clear left-wing uh, majority.
0: Hmm. Although you, you do, very interestingly, your far right, um, perhaps with the exception of uh, Thierry Baudet, but your far right tends to be socially liberal. Which is quite a new phenomenon.
1: Yeah, so so that's perhaps interesting that on on most of these issues, uh, they are uh, uh, liberal, like uh, issues like gay marriage. Um, uh, it, it is uh, uh, these these radical uh, populist parties. Uh, they they take uh, uh, more liberal uh, positions, also because they probably see and probably also think themselves of the, themselves that. Uh, This is just by far the sort of consensus position and only the the smaller Christian parties still oppose something like uh, gay marriage. Not very actively, but they're not very happy about it. But uh, uh, basically all others, even the uh, mainstream Christian Democrats, uh, are now clearly in in favor of it. Although they weren't when when it was introduced uh, uh, at the end of the 90s, start of the 2000s. but but that I think those positions are so generally accepted that they only stand to lose if they would take a very conservative views on the on those issues. But I, so there's a bit of a distinction between issues relating to national culture and immigration, where these new right wing parties take a very clearly pro Dutch culture, anti migration, anti Islam uh, point of view. And on the other hand, uh, uh, and also an anti-EU. Uh, but when it comes to uh, those, um, yeah, more ethical issues uh, like gay marriage, um, and to a certain extent also abortion, they're not super progressive on it, but they're not against this in uh, in, in in major ways either. Um, they they take a more moderate or progressive outlook. Hmm.
0: But that that brings us back to the the first part of the question, uh, which was about Dutch identity and this this um, this speech by Queen Maxima before she was queen. It, that does seem to have taken on a, a a really key importance in Dutch politics today.
1: Yeah, also because the response, especially by parties, I think, on that more. Uh, Pro Dutch culture, right? Was, of course. There's a Dutch identity, and uh, uh, this is it. Uh, um, it's it's uh, uh, includes tulips and flowers, and our progressive uh, attitude on some issues. Although they might have worded it slightly differently, um, uh, and uh, our, our uh, uh, even our type of economy, and so they pointed to different things that supposedly. Were identity, but of course, identity in every country is a difficult to grasp concept, and people might not fully agree on what it is. Uh, and there are always exceptions uh, to it. Um, so I, I think that's what the speech by uh, uh, by Maxima uh, tried to uh, try to see that it, the Dutch identity um, uh, with the definite article does not exist. It doesn't mean that there's no Dutch identity at all, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Also, you, you mentioned that uh, multiculturalism uh, became the, the new cleavage uh, in this uh, consociational democracy. Can you take us through how the minority populations came to the Netherlands, and, and also this point that you make um, in the book that Islam has never become big enough to be able to form its own pillar. I was quite intrigued by that, the idea that you have to reach a sort of critical mass in in order to qualify for being a Dutch pillar. Can you you take us through those two points?
1: Yeah, well, um, so there there were different waves of of guest labourers entering uh, uh, the country, um, mostly in the the 60s and 70s, and then especially in the 70s, uh, then it was guest labourers as they were called at the time, so work migrants um, uh, from um, uh, Morocco and and Turkey mainly, and those are still the two biggest uh, uh, ethnic minority groups uh, in the Netherlands uh, at at the moment. Um, And at the time, it was thought that they would fill uh, temporary jobs and then return. Um, I don't know if every migrant also thought that themselves. But at first, most of, uh, of of the men came over to do the work and their families stayed behind. But at, sort of, at some point, it also, when when it became clear that this was not a, a one-year or two-year thing or even a five-year thing, they also brought over their families, of course, uh, to to be here together as a family. And, and then it became clear that... Uh, that they were going to be part of Dutch of society. Um, and I think for a relatively long time, that was seen as perhaps uh, it, it was seen as, well, that's just the situation it is and, and that's absolutely fine and we just should accept it. Um, and perhaps also ignoring uh, problems associated with that, um, uh, in, especially in, in 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 local neighborhoods, um, and also perceived problems uh, by by the Dutch population who lived in their, in those neighborhoods and saw the character of the neighborhoods change. Of course, when mm. different people with different cultural habits uh, come to live there, it, especially in larger numbers, that might change um, how your neighborhoods uh, looks like and how it functions and the social realities in the neighborhoods. Um, and maybe that for a relatively long time, that was, relatively, uh, uh, remained relatively unrecognized in, uh, in, in Dutch politics. In the nineties, there was a little bit more discussion about, uh, asylum seekers and whether how open we should be to them and to migrants in general, or, although, um, uh, the, the main immigration of uh, work laborers had already stopped by then. Of course, there was still migration taking place for people who got their spouses uh, in in uh, in Morocco and Turkey. Um, so there were there were, there were new, still new migrants coming from those uh, countries uh, because for a long time that that was the dominant way of. Um, uh, of marriage uh, to find a partner back in in, uh, mm. in the country that your parents uh, originally came from, or you yourself originally came from. Um, so in 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 the nineties, there there came a, a bit more discussion. Also, um, uh, the liberal uh, uh, parliamentary party leader Fritz Bolkestein raised this issue and also gained some popularity uh, from it. But this was. Remained relatively uh, undiscussed, so uh, it was not t- too big an issue. And of course, the 90s economically went very well, uh, so in in those terms, the, the the then government was relatively popular. But basically, it it a very, became a very prominent item on the agenda in 2001, 2002, uh, raised by uh, Pim Fortuyn. Uh, who was uh, a new kid on the block in terms of uh, political representation and who, who really put this this item of migration and integration of, of these uh, minorities on the agenda, highlighting uh, problems, but not just sort of practical problems in the neighborhoods, but also the sense of cultural identity uh, on the agenda.
0: Yeah, what, what I found interesting um, since 2002, since what you call the, the long year of 2002, is how um, you know the, the, the far right in the Netherlands has significantly grown, but it doesn't ever seem to grow beyond that maximum 30 seats that it can win in the lower house between the various parties. And that seems to mirror what has happened in the past when you describe in the book the largest um, majority ever won. <clears throat> I don't have it in front of me. Oh, yeah, the largest majority ever won was the Christian Democrats in 1989 with 35%. So it's interesting that even this new insurgency just can't break out of that uh in the Netherlands. Why is it that minority... Why is it that these different... Um, Political forces are never able to, to, you know, to win over a a a majority in the Netherlands.
1: Um, Well, I I think just just to clarify, I I think the term pillarization no no longer really applies because those Mm. pillars with um, a a certain uh, group identity that has all kinds of organizations and a political party connected to it that has all but disappeared. Uh, Maybe you can still say for a, a very small uh, orthodox protestant uh, party uh, the politically reformed uh, party that that they still exists to to a certain degree but for all intents and purposes that um, has disappeared but it, it remains a country of minorities uh, in a sense and, and and no social group or even no political view uh, it gains a, a majority or has ever gained a majority uh, mm-hmm. among voters. Um, uh, I think only somewhere in the 1890s, the Liberal Union um, uh, uh, got just barely a majority, but that was a very broad coalition and in a time when there was no general suffrage. So that doesn't really count, <laughs> uh, I would mm-hmm. say. So in that sense, um, the pillarization structure disappeared, but it, it remains a country of uh, minorities, and and probably the fragmentation has increased only since the 1980s. Um, so in the 1980s, polarization was clearly already on its way back, but there were still three big political parties, the Christian Democrats, which are three parties, the Catholics and the two Protestant parties had merged by that time. Uh, so they were a very big party, and then the uh, Labour Party was very big, and the Liberals were also growing. They were were bigger already than they had been before and these three parties really dominated the political spectrum there were a few smaller ones but they were really re- really quite minor um, but but really that has changed in the, in the last uh, 30 years where you see further fragmentation due to voters making a more deliberate choice at each election saying well they might say, well, I'm a center right voter. Which party am I going to vote for this time? Would it be the Christian Democrats? Would it be the liberals? Might it be another smaller party? Or might I even consider one of the populist challenges? Um, so every voter, uh, as we call it in the book, has a sort of choice set of parties they consider uh, of course, that choice set might change also, but generally people think of certain parties that are acceptable to them and others uh, that they don't really think about. But for every election, they might choose a different party within that uh, within that choice uh, set. Um, so that uh, accounts for uh, quite a bit of fragmentation. And you see very clearly now that the once big Christian Democrats and social Democrats have become one of the Uh, mid-sized parties, as you might say, with around 10% of the vote and sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Um, uh, But they're they're not, at least not consistently bigger than other parties uh, in in that group. The only party that managed to be a little bit bigger in the last uh, decade or so is the the Liberal Party. Um, um, And in a sense, it's escaped... uh, the decline, at least for now, of the uh, of the Christian and Social Democrats, perhaps also because it it was never as strongly linked to the polarization uh, structure, uh, and its target group, which you might say middle class voters, has actually grown. Um, so, so in that sense, they are escaping it for now, but. To what extent this depends on the popularity of their current leader, the Prime Minister uh, Mark Rutte, um, uh, that's an open question. I many people think that once he would leave, um, it would be more challenging for the Liberal Party to to keep that uh, that vote uh, up. But yeah, you, you asked the question and I forgot to answer uh, about uh, uh, about the uh, a party for a Muslim. A my, minority yeah. or a yeah. pillar. But I think for the pillarization, um, their arrival was too late because the system of pillarization was already breaking down by that time. Um, and of course, pillarization also means that you have all kinds of organizations you set up. And if you're a new group working as uh, uh, migrant workers in a society, then it's, of course, quite difficult to set up a whole myriad of uh, uh, organizations uh, like that. And it, if that structure is also already breaking down, the incentive might not as, be as big. But for a long time, it, at least politically, this group has been uh, sort of involved in, in some of the bigger parties, uh, like the Social Democratic Party, and to a smaller extent, also the, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals. Only more recently, and, and that's par- perhaps also a response to. The, the radical right-wing populist parties, they have formed their own political parties, uh, DENK, which uh, gained uh, three uh, seats, so that's about two percent uh, in, in the 2017 election, their name means think, um, and, and that's a, a party that in practice uh, targets mainly uh, Turkish and Mor- uh, Moroccan uh, voters or people with a Turkish or Moroccan a migrant background, and many of these people, of course, are born in the Netherlands. So uh, mm. you wouldn't want to call them Turkish or Moroccan voters, uh, but at least they have this cultural uh, background. Um, and 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 part of the reason is that this group uh, also feels somewhat uh, marginalized, uh, not only traditionally but especially uh, because there's this this strong opposition uh, to. Um, to them, as as they feel it, from radical right wing uh, parties, uh, and they say, "Well, we need to stand up uh, for our position and for uh, for our ability to, for example, practice our religion, uh, because uh, some of these party on parties on the radical right uh, basically say uh, that religious freedoms should not extend to Islam." Um, and then you might understand that 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 people who are religiously uh, uh, involved or cult- at least culturally uh, uh, attached to Islam, uh, would would stand up and uh, and and form a political party to, as they might feel it, defend uh, those those values and stand up uh, for for their interests.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, underlying the discussion we've had in the last couple of minutes is 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 the what you describe in the book as um, the extreme proportionality of the electoral system, where. You only need to get 0.667 percent of the national vote to win a seat in the lower house, and there's no geographical representation. <clears throat> now, coming from a first past the post country, uh, the thing that interests me most is is this this thing you you call coalition preference voting, and this is completely alien to to British or Americans. But I, I but it's actually quite attractive, <laughs> the idea that that for example. Mark Rutter at the moment is ruling out in advance that he would bring Gerd Wilders into a coalition, and Wilders is using that to warn voters on the right that Rutter intends to attack left. So it, it it means that voters are making this very calculated decision about what coalition they think could be formed and which party it, it is most rational to vote for to get the coalition you want. Could, could you talk us through that? It's a very interesting concept for, for an outsider.
1: Yeah, so I think that the, the proportionality of the Dutch system has one advantage in that the, the parliament is really quite representative of the various uh, interests and uh, preferences of, of voters. So all voices in society pop up in parliament. But it is rather difficult through your vote for parliament to influence who will get into government. Um, of course, bigger parties in parliament have a, a, a bigger chance to be in, in government because uh, traditionally it is a, a aimed that majority governments are formed. So if you have more seats, you can contribute to that majority. But there, there are a lot of possible uh, potential uh, coalitions uh, uh, at, at the start of a coalition formation uh, process so voters sometimes try to influence which coalition um, will, uh, will, uh, will happen but, but it is really difficult to do so um, because there's no guarantees of course if, if one party says before the elections we're never going to go into coalition with this other party then um, the the chances of them doing that after all is going to be very small Uh, but those sort of exclusions uh, do not happen that often and and in recent times they haven't been mostly seen uh, towards the radical right although the radical right i think also excludes some some left-wing parties themselves uh, but the left wing parties in question also exclude the radical right so that's uh, mm. uh that's a sort of mutual exclusion but most of the parties which are sort of ranging from the center left to the center uh right uh do not exclude each other also because it might be necessary to to form a government they feel after the election um because if if the uh, parties on the radical li- right in total gets about thirty out of one hundred and fifty seats, you only have one hundred and twenty seats left to form a majority uh, government, um, basically. So, so, so um, the options uh, are shrinking, and then mm-hmm. uh, sometimes some parties think it's relatively difficult to, for example, include the Socialist Party because they uh, have quite. Uh, uh outspoken ideas about um the economy and uh, state intervention um so especially for the more right-wing parties that uh, that seems a less likely scenario so in that sense the options are limiting and and they don't want to really exclude too many parties before uh, the election um but yeah it's 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 a difficult game and there's no clear link between the election outcome and which party uh, gets in government it it is of course a constraint uh, because if you win no seats, you, you don't get into government, and mm-hmm. and the more seats you win, uh, the more it helps you. But there's no guarantee, and and you often see that the second party in terms of seats does not get into government, uh, um, uh, because then them that, that might you know, in some cases there was the Labor Party, and uh, then the biggest party was the Liberal Party, and they formed a the coalition more on the right, um, so. Uh, th- there's no guarantees, um, and, and that's quite different from a, a country with, with first-past-the-post, where, of course, these parliamentary majorities are partially created. I mean, the biggest party in the UK election usually does not win a majority of, uh, of votes if you look at the national mm-hmm. vote, um, but because of the uh, winner-takes-all system in in small districts of, of, of one uh uh, MP elected in each district that produces uh, usually at least an outcome mm-hmm. uh, where where one party has a, as a majority. Um, so that does not happen in, in in the Dutch case and there's always coalitions to uh, to be built. Um, you can say that it, it is a weak link between those election outcomes and, and the outcome of the formation much weaker uh, than in uh, uh, systems like the UK. Uh, the advantage is that the parties that are in, in, in government then usually do represent a majority of the voters and not just yeah. a majority of legislators.
0: Yes, I, I mean, I'm certainly not criticizing it. And, and I do wonder whether... um, do, do you think Dutch people are pretty content with this fragmentation in the sense that for the reason you just gave that you essentially end up with a government that represents a majority even though you've got a lot of fragmentation or do you think that over time there's the possibility that um broader new parties will be created for example i i i quite often get the impression that what mark rutter would like if he could have it would be a complete unification of liberal forces including d66 including the right of the PBda and and then allowing a, a sort of right rump to to create itself. Um, do you think that's a possibility and would it be something that Dutch people would want or are they kind of happy with the system they have?
1: Well, I mean I think like almost everywhere uh, opinions are divided uh, I mean there's a group and especially radical right-wing, a uh, uh, populist uh, uh, supporters are mostly really not very happy with the political system, uh, like they are in other countries, um, and 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 sometimes they say, "Well, all the all the mainstream parties are basically very similar, and whether whether you vote for the Green Party or uh, or the Liberal Party, you get the same results." Um, that's their view. I don't think this is entirely true, um, but. Uh, mm. uh, they are disappointed with the way democracy works uh, in the Netherlands, but I think the largest majority is relatively happy with with democracy. And when you when you ask them, well, fewer parties then most people say, yeah, fewer parties might be might be a good idea because uh, uh, at the last election, thirteen parties won seats. It might even be more parties this time. Uh, that's a, a lot of fragmentation, and then sometimes people uh, suggest well maybe uh, there could be a, a threshold uh, like they have in Germany uh, for for winning seats um, although that 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 does not really change the nature of or change the, the problem of fragmentation in the Netherlands it seems because the problem is not so much that there are a lot of very small parties that um, and even if there were, if you have got five parties that have got one seat, that that's not the main complication in government formation. The main complication is that you have so many mid-sized parties of around 10%. And, mm-hmm. and if you have a lot of those parties, you need four or five of them to, to, to win a parliamentary majority. And really addressing that problem, then a, th- a threshold does not really help you. Um, uh, one of uh, my colleagues uh, from the University of, of Amsterdam, um, he's, he's calculated it for the 2017 elections. And really to make coalition formation um, easier in that respect, you'd need a threshold of uh, about 10%, which is <laughs> incredibly high. Uh, and and that, that I think Turkey has such a threshold, uh, which... We certainly, at the moment, might not seen as a beacon of, <laughs> uh, of democracy, um, uh, and I, I think even people who were in favour of threshold would never uh, say that it should be so high. Um, that there might be mergers of parties happening at some time. Uh, there's, there's more and more talk about, especially on the left, uh, the Green Party and the Labour Party are, in terms of po- policy positions, quite close. There's somewhat different emphasis on issues. For example, the Green Party, uh, unsurprisingly, puts the environment very high on the agenda, a little bit higher, I think, than the, than the Labour Party. Um, but there, there's a lot of talk about it, but then uh, party members sometimes... Um, are hesitant, and and often you hear, yeah, yeah, there's parties, these parties, they, of course, they can, uh, they can merge, no problem. But that's usually not the parties that people f- uh, vote for themselves. So it's others yeah, sure. in the distance. Oh, they all seem very similar, and they, they should just merge. Uh, but not so much our, our own party, because uh, uh, they, they they might say, well, I, I, of course, for my own party, they're really distinct from these other parties uh, that are uh, uh, sometimes seen as close to them. So. Um, there is debate about it but uh, voters could also help this by flocking to certain parties and it, it does not really happen uh, the, the fragmentation uh, 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 really uh, really stays um, and uh, has, uh, I think that that has been a trend over the last 20-30 uh, uh, years um, and and perhaps when some of these parties continue to do quite badly, they might have more incentive to start thinking about mergers. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's. I think at the moment we see more trends towards uh, uh, more fragmentation rather than, than mergers of parties.
0: Yes. And, and I mean, with the collapse of party affiliation, you have this really fascinating section in the book examining different models for predicting how people will vote now. Um, what, what do you think are the strongest predictors for party preference at the moment? Is it, is it attitudes towards Europe and, and internationalism, attitudes towards immigration and assimilation? What What are the main predictors now?
1: Well, uh, as, as other political scientists have, have, has, uh, have observed, this, this cultural dimension, so in terms of migration and integration of minorities, has become more and more important, um, also in, in distinguishing uh, uh, voters. Um, and, and that seems to play a, a big role in, in, in voting behavior next to the general economic uh, policies as well. Um, So I think those remain the two major dimensions uh, of of political competition in the Netherlands. Um, Of course, there are other smaller issues um, like religious issues and medical, ethical issues are very important for some voters, but the largest group of voters um, is towards the the more liberal end of that scale. Um, So I think really cultural issues and economic issues remain uh, very important and their um, colleagues have observed uh, uh, somewhat of a tension because there's a big group of voters which is left-wing in their economic attitudes or center-left i mean not Mm -hmm. extremely but towards the left of the spectrum while they are more restrictive or uh, 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 monocultural on the cultural issues on migration um, and there's not really a political party which combines these two positions. So most left economic left-wing parties are also culturally left-wing um, or uh, liberal in terms of migration, and most economic right-wing parties are also restrictive in terms of migration. But that combination of a left-wing economics with a more restrictive migration policy, you don't really see that to a certain extent the, uh, the PVV, the Freedom Party of Geert Wilders, tries to do that by moving economically more to the left. Uh, although that move is usually stronger in their manifesto than it is in their actual voting behavior in parliament. Um, But they they try a little bit bit to appeal to that, which is sometimes difficult for their leader because he he came from the the right and also the economic right of the Liberal Mm -hmm. Party originally. So it doesn't come naturally to him, you might say, but his party tries to appeal a little bit to those voters, but doesn't really get into the economic left-wing heartland, I would say. And then there's the Socialist Party, which is a clear economic left-wing party, which traditionally is a bit more restrictive about migration than some other left-wing parties, but also doesn't really go into a very restrictive position. So so both of them try to make inroads into this group of voters, but they don't really do it because it seems that in terms of ideology, it it seems harder to, to connect the two if you... Yeah, really in favor of solidarity uh, uh, economic solidarity and redistribution of income etc um, usually that ideologically seems to go hand in hand with a more uh, international outlook as well and solidarity also in international term in international terms and the reverse might be say might be said for 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 right-wing parties so the combination of of, of these two uh, attitudes the the Economic left-wing and the culturally uh, migration-type re- restrictive, it, it, it seems to be difficult for political uh, elites to to take up that uh, that position, and that means that that group of voters basically has to choose: Do I choose primarily because of the cultural values, and then I might choose a a party which is restrictive on migration, and then economically m- maybe more right-wing than I'm I would be as a voter, or would I? Uh, think economic issues are more important and then choose a party which might be more liberal on the migration dimension.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, to close the conversation, I'd like to ask you to recommend a book, uh, any book um, for listeners to the podcast.
1: Yeah, so I, I was thinking about this and and one book that for me really opened eyes in terms of the study of countries in comparative terms is... Uh, a book called Patterns of Democracy from Arend Leiphardt, who was a Dutch-American, is a Dutch-American political scientist. He he wrote the first edition at the end of the 1990s, but there was an update uh, um, early uh, in the the 2010s. Um, And in in this book, he, he really explores the the different patterns of institutions that democracies have. And we've talked a little bit about some of the, these things like the differences in electoral systems between the UK and the Netherlands, but there's also differences in terms of being a federation or a more centralized uh, country. And the way he analyzes that I think is very accessible. Um, So, uh, one, one fellow student uh, said it when we read it as students, one of my, my fellow students, oh, you can read this to your child at uh, at bedtime. So well, that's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but I think it's really very accessible and really tries to to get at this point in a very clear way. So for me, that was a really interesting uh, book to read.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, today I've been talking to Tom Loewiser about the governance and politics of the Netherlands, published in 2020 by Red Globe Press. Tom, thanks again for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me.